Thanks, Dave. Good morning. My name is uh, Jeff Ashley, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us at uh, the Parkway Church. As Dave just read, we will be in Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. So if you have a Bible, uh, you will want to uh, open up to that. We'll have it up on the screen for anyone who doesn't have a Bible. Uh, But if you can follow along, uh, that would be really helpful. As you turn there, again, Romans 10, 5 through 13, I want to uh, tell you a little bit about my childhood. I grew up in a, uh, a little city called Baytown, which is interesting. Baytown is actually a city. Bay City is actually a town. But I grew up in uh, Baytown, Texas, just uh, southeast of, uh, of Houston. And uh, there was a tunnel in my hometown that connected Baytown to uh, Laporte. And, uh, and so it went under the Houston Ship Channel. And it was the way that we would get to Galveston or we would get to visit my aunt's Uh, and uncles in Friendswood or Clear Lake uh, or any of those kind of things. So we kind of took this tunnel regularly. And as a kid, I just loved tunnels. There's something about being a kid where you love uh, tunnels. And so in particular, I would love to do the thing where you try to hold your breath the entire tunnel. It was about a mile long. And so it was really fun to kind of challenge yourself unless you got stuck behind someone who was going really slow, in which case you died or whatever. And, uh, and so that was my experience. I remember cheating as I would play this game. I would hold my breath, uh, I would puff out my cheeks, and I would put my fingers over my nose, and then I would secretly be breathing. And I wasn't competing against anybody else. I was literally just cheating myself, and uh, yet this was what I uh, would do. And as a kid, I remember thinking how much fun it would be to drive through this tunnel. And, uh, and so some people dream of like changing the world. I dreamed of driving through this big tunnel. And, uh, and so that's kind of all I've ever wanted to do. Uh, and I've never been so proud as uh, whenever my daughter, we will go under an overpass that is particularly dark or we'll go through some sort of tunnel and she will scream tunnel. And that's how I know she's mine. And, uh, and so uh, I just love tunnels. And so whenever I turned 16, I got my license. I got to do it. Mission accomplished. I got to drive through the tunnel but only a handful of times because uh, uh, the, the year that I turned 16, uh, they actually built the Fred Hartman Bridge. And uh, so little known fact, it is the 77th largest bridge in, uh, in the world, and it is here in the great state of, uh, of Texas. Now, you might think that there are two ways now that you can get across the ship channel there. You can take the tunnel or you can take the bridge, uh, the bridge, but you would be incorrect. That is no longer the case because when they opened uh, the bridge, they closed down the tunnel. It is no longer uh, accessible. Somehow, they also removed the tunnel from the ship channel. I have no idea how they do that. Sometimes I can't get a penny off the bottom of the pool, and somehow they're pulling out tunnels from under the ship channel. I have no idea how tunnels are made or how they're removed, uh, but that's what uh, they did. And so we've been talking about, over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about this fact that uh, with the coming of faith in Christ, there is a change that occurs where no longer do we go to the law uh, as, a, as a source for us to attain righteousness. And, uh, and so similar to the way that now that the bridge has been opened, the tunnel is closed, now that there is this new covenant that is made, no longer do we go to the Old Covenant and all of its processes and procedures and rules and all of those kinds of things. With the building of the bridge, the tunnel is closed uh, as a means of access. And similar to that, last week we saw that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, the law is still important. We talked about that last week. It's still relevant to us. 
There's a lot of uses of the law. The law will tell us how to discern between righteous and unrighteous poverty. Uh, the law will uh, tell us how to discern what is truly justice and what is injustice. Uh, the law will help us to discern uh, cases of, uh, of sexual assault and all of these sorts of things. There's all of these uses of the law, but one of the things that we can't use the law for is we don't go to the law as our means of attaining uh, righteousness. And the reason that uh, this is going to be so important for us is really twofold. First, because no one could ever keep the law. I want you to imagine that the law is like this tunnel, and it provides access to where you want to go, but now imagine that the law is completely underwater, as the tunnel is, but imagine it's filled with water as well. It's filled completely with water. There's no air pockets in there whatsoever, and in order for you to get to the other side, you can't drive. You have to swim, and so you have to hold your breath, and let's imagine it's miles and miles long. There is no way possible that you could do it. That's what the law is. It is unattainable for you. So if that is your means of attaining righteousness, then it is impossible, and every one of us have no hope whatsoever. If the tunnel or if God's law is your only hope for attaining righteousness, then it is hopeless. You are doomed. You are damned. That's the first reason that this is so important that the tunnel is closed and the bridge is now open. The second reason that this is so important is because it means that righteousness is available to Gentiles as well. Now, that should be really important to you and to I because I would imagine the overwhelming majority of people in this room are not ethnically Jewish. So this is important for us. We don't tend to think about uh, this all the time. It may not seem like a particularly big issue for us, and yet this is the primary struggle, the primary wrestle, the primary conflict in the early church. Entire books of the Bible are written about this subject, in particular the book of Galatians, in particular the book of Romans that we're in, the book of Hebrews. All of these kinds of things are trying to wrestle through the implications of what was historically just a, a Jewish faith now being open to, uh, to the Gentiles. So this is a huge deal. The law was a particularly Jewish thing. It specified how Israel was to be distinct from all other nations, wear this, eat this, do this, when to worship, where to worship, how to worship, uh, etc. So in saying that we're no longer, uh, that we no longer take the tunnel uh, for the sake of righteousness, the way is open for Gentiles to be justified without becoming Jews. So the idea that we're going to talk about today is that this bridge that is the righteousness based on faith has replaced the tunnel that is righteousness based on the law and that how, that's going to uh, both highlight how anyone can be saved in general and also how Gentiles can be saved in uh, particular. So I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, dive into the text to see what Paul says here about this sort of tale of two uh, righteousnesses. First, just want to ask you to pray for yourself. The Lord would give you uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you pray that for those around you as well, for friends or family or strangers or whatever it might be. And then lastly, would you pray for me? I would be faithful to His Word. So Father, we ask that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies. You would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in Your Word. That You would unite our hearts to fear Your name and satisfy us this morning with Your steadfast love. 
We ask these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin in uh, Romans 10, 5, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So last week, we ended, obviously, in verse 4. And verse 4 said this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you see, you see the little phrase there, law for righteousness, in verse 4? Well, that will be parallel to what we talk about in verse 5, which is the righteousness based on the law. So law for righteousness or righteousness based on the law are going to be parallel. And so this law for righteousness or righteousness based on the law, Paul will say, was written about by Moses, and, uh, and he quotes there Leviticus 18. That's what he quotes in Romans 10. Leviticus 18, verse 5, says this, "'You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord.'" In other words, if you want to live, you must obey. That's what the law says. Obey what? You have to obey God's statutes and rules, in particular what we call the Mosaic Law. That is the 613 or so commandments that God gives to Israel through Moses at uh, Sinai and in the wilderness uh, in general. If you want to live, you have to obey that. That's what the law says. The law says if you want to live, you must obey. Now, there's two different ways that you could potentially read that. There's two ways that you could read Leviticus 18. There's two different ways that you could think about the law. So I want you to imagine this scenario. Imagine, if you will, that you are a police officer and you respond to a, a call for some sort of crime in progress. And you arrive there, and there's a bystander, and this bystander begins to set the scene for you. You're the first person, uh, you're the first police officer to show up, and so this bystander sh- uh, tells you what's going on, and he says, uh, there are multiple suspects, they have multiple hostages, they have a small arsenal. Like, they have, uh, they have automatic weapons, they have bazookas, they even have a tank, all right? Now, there are two different ways that you can think about this. One is you can think, man, this is my opportunity to shine. And you take out your gun and you run in there shouting Leroy Jenkins and you just guns blazing all over the place, all right? Now, who thinks that's the appropriate response? Some of you are shaking your head yes, in which case that's the reason that you're not a police officer. No, that's not the appropriate response. Instead, what do you do? You call for backup. You need SWAT. You need the bomb squad. You need maybe Iron Man or something like that. Uh, so there, likewise, whenever we read this, uh, this, uh, this text that says, if you, live, uh, if you obey the law, you will live, or in order to live, you must obey uh, the law, we need to take this uh, analogy and apply it to the verse. Is a passage that says, when Moses writes, the person who does the commandments shall live by them, is that intended to tell us what we can possibly achieve? Should we read that and think, all right, let's do this. 613 commandments, here I come. Or is it instead intended to warn us of the dangers and to clue us into the fact that we need backup? I absolutely think it's the latter. The Mosaic Law is kind of like when we're kids and you only got a trophy if you won. Who remembers those days? It's not like a cantankerous old man, right? my day, we didn't get trophies for participation or whatever it might be. But that was the way it was back then. You didn't get a trophy 
for coming in last place. You got a trophy only if you came in first place. That's kind of like the Mosaic Law. There is no sort of uh, prize that you get if you fulfill 526 of the 613 commandments. There's no uh, second place thing if you, could, if you fulfill 612 of the 613 commandments. The law is seen as this solitary sort of union uh, unit. And if you want to attain righteousness through the law, you must obey it absolutely perfectly. Think of that illustration of the tunnel again. It doesn't matter if you swim 50 yards or 500 yards. You're still going to end up drowning. That's what the law is. It's this solitary uh, unit. It was never designed uh, to, uh, to cure sin. The law is kind of like a, a, an MRI machine. It's not designed to cure the cancer. It's designed to, uh, to, to show it, to highlight it, to, uh, to reveal it, to diagnose the problem. It's not the surgery. It's not the chemo that's intended to destroy it. So for us to attempt to gain righteousness by the law is to use it in a way that it was never designed to be used. So what's wrong with the law? We've talked about this over and over over the past few months. Nothing is wrong with the law. Nothing's wrong with the law. What's wrong is us. There's something profoundly wrong with us. We've used this analogy before. Imagine the law is a vehicle, and that vehicle uh, runs perfectly. That vehicle is good. That vehicle uh, is a very nice vehicle. Just fill in the blank with whatever you think is a nice vehicle, whether that's a Lexus or a Bentley or a Ferrari or whatever it might be. That vehicle works, and it works well. The problem is that you and I get behind the wheel, and we are absolutely plastered. We're inebriated. We are drunk with sin. And so what is an instrument that can get us where we're going instead is an instrument that leads toward our death. There's nothing wrong with the instrument, but in our hands, in the hands of a sinful flesh, there is a problem with it. So if you get behind the wheel of the law, you crash and burn. By the way, Paul's going to write about this exact same thing in Galatians. He's going to quote this same Leviticus 18 verse there in Galatians 3. Let's look at that real quickly. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Again, you can't just simply do 610 or 612 Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So what it's saying there, obedience is not technically impossible. After all, Christ perfectly obeyed the law, but it is absolutely, utterly impossible for those with a sinful nature. And so if we go to the law as a means of righteousness, we are hopeless, which is why we need another source for righteousness that is the righteousness based on faith. And Paul will talk about that in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now that is really confusing. That sounds like a riddle. What in the world does that mean? There's all kinds of confusing things about this passage. 
For instance, if Paul's point is that righteousness is based on faith and not law, and that doing the law perfectly is impossible, then it seems really interesting that he would quote this passage that in its context seems to say that you can actually do the law, that it's not too hard for you, that it's not too far away. So that seems really confusing. Second, how is it that Paul can take a text that originally refers to the Mosaic law in its original context and somehow just read text into that or or to read Jesus into that? Just somehow to fit him, to squeeze him into that. Notice, notice the parenthetical comments there where it says to bring Christ down or to raise Christ up or something uh, like that. How does, uh, how does Paul read a text that applies the Old Testament law and somehow see Jesus there? Well, if you're a uh, liberal scholar, then you iron out that confusion by simply saying Paul's a poor exegete. He just didn't know what he was doing uh, in regards to reading Uh, the text, but that's absurd. Besides Christ, there is no one who reads the Old Testament and understands the Old Testament to the degree that the Apostle Paul does. Not only was he this learned Pharisee, but he spent the latter part of his life reading the, uh, the entire Old Testament with his Jesus glasses on. He reads the Old Testament through the lens, through the filter of the gospel of the kingdom and, uh, and Jesus Christ. So he sees Christ and gospel everywhere. He opens up a page of the Old Testament and he sees Jesus there somehow. He sees gospel. He doesn't see this huge rift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He sees shadow and substance. He sees prophecy and provision, promise and fulfillment. So I want to read this Old Testament passage that Paul's referencing here in, uh, in its context, and it's Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Moses is writing and he writes, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So I want us to think back for a second to Israel's history. If you are a Jew, then your sort of identity is founded upon these two historical events, these two events in redemptive history that for you kind of symbolize what it means for you to be a Jew. What's interesting is that one of them takes place on a mountain and one of them takes place at the sea. You can probably already imagine what two events I'm thinking of. What takes place at the sea? God delivers his people from slavery there. As the Egyptians are closing in on them, God parts the Red Sea, leads the people through uh, on dry land, and then closes the sea back over the Egyptians. What takes place at a mountain? God gives his people the law there at the mountain. What's interesting about this is that both of these events take place solely, take place purely by grace. The law was not something that they had to ascend to heaven in order to attain. The law was not something that they had to cross a sea in order to attain. God condescended to bring it down to them. Redemption was not something that they had to strive for. God simply gave it to them. God delivered them. Well, likewise, what this verse is saying is that the Word of God was never some sort of magical quest that Jews weren't like Indiana Jones searching for the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail 
or the crystal skull, I didn't see that movie, but I assume it's not very good, that the Jews weren't on some sort of magical quest where they had to attain the Word of God because God had already given His Word to them. Israel didn't have to climb Mount Everest to encounter God because God had already bridged the gap. God had brought His Word near. In other words, righteousness was never something that was attained through striving, but rather through resting, trusting, believing in what God has already provided. If you want a summary of this section, which is, again, a confusing section of Scripture, that is it, that righteousness was never a matter of striving, but of resting. And if that's true in the shadow of the law, how much more true is it in light of the gospel? If that's true that the law and the exodus and all of these other events in Israel's history were solely and purely by grace, how much more true is that for us as we consider the incarnation, incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We, that is you and I, we don't bring Christ down. We don't raise Him up because those things have already been accomplished. It's kind of like trying to unlock a door that's already unlocked. All of your striving, all of your effort, all that's going to do is end up breaking the key because it's already unlocked. The door is already open. That's what he's saying here. He's saying righteousness is not a matter of striving. Righteousness is not a matter of working. Righteousness is a matter of resting. Listen, church, the righteousness that God requires for you is the righteousness that God has provided for you. The righteousness based on faith declares that God has already accomplished absolutely everything necessary for your righteousness. Absolutely everything necessary for your justification. Absolutely everything necessary for your acceptance by God. Every single bit of it. You contribute nothing except the sin that makes your justification necessary. God has done everything. The door is already unlocked. In fact, the door is already open, so our response is not striving, it's not working, it's not laboring. Our response is resting, believing, trusting. That's what this means in context. That's what it means that righteousness is by faith and not law. And then he's going to expound upon that in verses 9 through 10, which say, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Raise your hand if you had a really cool car when you were a kid. A couple of people had a really cool car. Tim had a really cool car. He like rebuilt it. I don't know what it was, but it was something cool. I had a 1992 uh, electric blue Plymouth Laser. That's not a cool car, all right? And, uh, and so it had uh, 95 horsepower, uh, so you knew I meant business when I came down the road. You, you heard me. You could almost hear me over your uh, lawnmower or something like that. And uh, it also had, it was a hand-me-down for my brother, so he had uh, gently worn it out, in which case, I mean, uh, he had absolutely worn it out. And, uh, and so whenever he went off to college, I picked up the payments, and, uh, and so this was my car, and, uh, and I loved it. And it had a manual transmission, and when I first got it, I didn't know how to drive a manual transmission. But growing up, watching people dr uh, drive, I just assumed that just at random times, you just kind of moved uh, the gear shift. I thought, that's just what you do. You just kind of, when you feel like it, you know, whenever it feels right to you, you just move it. I didn't know what it uh, was or why you had to do it. And, and, and then, whenever I actually decided I need to learn how to do this because this is the car that I'm going to be driving, 
uh, I realized it's actually a little bit more complex than that, right? You have to kind of pay attention to your RPMs. You have to pay attention to your speed. Uh, you, have to, uh, you have to press in the clutch. Uh, if you're on an incline, you have to make sure you come off the brake and come on the gas uh, at an appropriate time or you'll just roll back into the car that's behind you, whatever it, uh, it might be. Now, the reason I mention that is because when the Bible talks about what must we do to be saved, you might think of it through this analogy of driving a manual transmission. There's all these steps. There's all these things that you must accomplish. Uh, here in this passage, it says you must confess and it says you must believe. If you're reading in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, it says you must repent and you must believe, uh, or you must be baptized. So now we're up to four different things that the Bible is going to say that you must do in order to be saved. So is that like driving a, 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 a manual transmission? Is that kind of like uh, if you do three out of the four, you just end up kind of dropping out your transmission, like trying to shift into reverse when you're driving down the highway at 65 or something like that? Is that what it's like? Well, no, that's not at all what, uh, what it's like. This, this passage with this emphasis on, uh, on confession somehow undercut justification by faith alone, as if what Paul's saying is that you're saved by faith plus confession. What if you get saved on your deathbed before you have a chance to confess? What if you're mute and you can't speak? Is that just kind of too bad? Is that Paul's point? You're just kind of out of luck, bad circumstance, bad timing, whatever it might be? Well, of course not. Paul's not intending to give us two separate, distinct sort of uh, things that you must do to respond to the gospel. Instead, these are just two different dimensions to the same response. Why is it that Paul says you must believe and confess? Why is it that he mentions these two different things in light of the fact that the Bible says all you must do is have faith? Well, think back. We just quoted Deuteronomy 30, and in part of Deuteronomy 30... Paul says there that the word is near you. And remember, after uh, Moses says the word is near you, then what does it say? Does anybody remember? It's in your mouth and in your heart. It's in your mouth and in your heart. So he's just quoted Deuteronomy 30, which mentions the mouth and the heart. So then Paul asks this question. He asks this question, what does the mouth do? Well, the mouth confesses. What does the heart do? Well, the heart believes. That's the reason that he mentions uh, the, the mouth and the heart, belief and confession, because he's trying to connect this point with what he has already said there in Deuteronomy 30, mouth, heart, confession, and faith. So what must you do to be saved? Just believe. That's absolutely it. Absolutely nothing else is necessary. And yet Paul knows that the type of faith that saves is the type of faith that corresponds to repentance. The type of faith that overflows in confession. The type of faith that overflows in, uh, in baptism. So he's not trying to give us this formula or this flow chart of faith plus some works. He's simply uh, d describing what true faith entails. In other words, if, the over, if out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, then he's going to say, if your heart really latches onto the gospel, there's going to be a confession. There's going to be an overflow in regards to our confession with our mouth. So notice what he says that the heart believes and by implication what the mouth confesses. Now this is not an, uh, an exhaustive list of all of the different things that you should believe or all of the different things that you should confess, but it's a general summary. And there's two things in particular that he mentions, the first one being the resurrection of Christ. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
A buddy of mine uh, once polled a handful of people at, uh, at his church and asked them to describe or to define uh, the gospel. And I forget how many it was, but it was a substantial number of, uh, of people, uh, including uh, a number of people who were leaders uh, in the church. And you know how many of them mentioned the resurrection? Zero. Zero of them. All of them loved Jesus. All of them uh, loved church. All of them were genuine believers, it seems. And yet at the same time, you might as well have thought that Christ was still in the grave because no one mentioned the resurrection. It's astounding, and it should be a little bit embarrassing how little emphasis the modern American evangelical church places on the resurrection as opposed to, contrasted to, how much emphasis the early church placed upon the resurrection. For the apostles, the resurrection of Christ was the apologetic for the Christian faith. It was the evidence. It was the proof that uh, Christ is who He said he, uh, He was. Lots of people over the years have claimed to be prophets. A few have claimed to be Messiah. A few have claimed to be God Himself. But only one has ever risen from the dead as justification of those claims. And so let me just give you a little smattering, a little list of evidences of the centrality of the resurrection just from the book of Acts, just from the, uh, the book of Acts. So first, chapter 1, the disciples are going to replace Judas, and they're thinking, what are the requirements for someone who is going to be a replacement for Judas? Judas has disqualified himself. Judas, by this point, has already committed suicide. They need someone uh, to replace him, and they say one of the requirements is this person must have been a witness to the resurrection. This was an apostolic requirement. In fact, even Paul himself, who was not one of the original disciples, but he is an apostle. How is he an apostle? Because he has seen the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. Damascus. Second, in Peter's sermons at Pentecost in chapter 2 and Solomon's portico in chapter 3, both of them crescendo with mention of the resurrection. Third, when the apostles stand before the Jewish council, what is it that they're proclaiming? In both chapters 4 and 5, they proclaim the resurrection. Fourth, when Luke, the author of Acts, summarizes what it was that the apostles were preaching in Acts chapter 4, he says the summary is that they bore witness to the resurrection. Fifth, the resurrection was at the center of the message to the Gentiles. When the gospel goes forth, when the gospel leaves not only uh, in Jerusalem and Judea, but it goes to Samaria and to uh, the ends of the earth, the Gentiles, in, in Acts uh, chapter 10, the resurrection was at the center of that message. Sixth, the resurrection serves as the, cl- as the climax of nearly all of Paul's sermons to Jews and Gentiles throughout his missionary endeavors. In other words, the resurrection is kind of a big deal. You're reading through the book of Acts. It is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the response of the early church to the reality of the resurrection. The reason it's such a big deal is because it implies the other explicit aspect of the gospel that Paul's going to mention here in Romans 10. That is the lordship of Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, the resurrection is going to prove the claim that Jesus is Lord and therefore call for repentance as a response. I want to look at one example of a sermon in Acts where this is developed in Acts chapter 2, 32-35. And I want you to notice this progression here, how he's going to be arguing very logically. This is Peter who's preaching here in Acts 2. This is the sermon at Pentecost. So he, write, or he says, this Jesus God raised up as resurrection, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted 
at the right hand of God, that's resurrection and ascension, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So notice the language there of resurrection, and then notice what it says in the next verse, Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As a result of the resurrection, let all the house of Israel therefore, in light of this, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And what's the implication of his lordship? The very next two verses, Acts 2, 37-38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the resurrection is going to validate the lordship of Christ, and that's going to demand faith and repentance. You might have heard before, we've talked about uh, this before and how this is not accurate. You might have heard before, though, that you can have Christ as Savior, but not as Lord, and I'm telling you that is theologically absurd Not only does Paul explicitly connect the fact that Jesus is Lord as part of what we must believe and confess, but even his mention of the resurrection is going to assume the lordship of Christ. In other words, if he's not risen, then he's not Lord. And if he's not Lord, then there's no repentance. And if there's no repentance, then there's no faith. If there's no faith, there's no salvation. As C.S. Lewis once remarked, if he isn't Lord, then he's a liar or a lunatic or a legend, and yet the resurrection is going to show that none of the latter are true. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's not a legend. He is Lord. Now, this is radical for a couple of reasons. First, because we've just spent uh, weeks in, uh, in Romans 8 through 9 considering predestination. What's really interesting, Paul has no problem whatsoever with at the same time talking about the fact that uh, God's people are saved as a result of predestination and election, and then also saying that God's people are saved as a result of faith. For him, those are not contradictory. In fact, they're complementary. They go together. Romans 9 is answering the question that uh, Romans 10 is based on. Romans 10 is asking this question, how are you saved? And the answer is by believing. Well, Romans 9 is going to ask the follow-up question. That is, how do you believe? That is by election. That is by uh, predestination. So that's the first reason that this is radical. Sometimes people will, uh, will kind of caricature the position on predestination as if it doesn't matter if you believe or not. No, predestination doesn't negate your responsibility to believe. It's what empowers you. It's what enables you to believe. Those who are predestined will believe. The second reason that this is radical is because Paul is a first century Jew grounded in monotheism, passionately committed to Old Testament monotheism. So he isn't just saying that you have to confess that Jesus is a Lord. He isn't saying that you confess Jesus as just some, your personal Lord, as if you just take Jesus and you put him up on your, your, your hearth or your mantle along Vishnu or Allah or Caesar or Baal or whoever it might be. He's saying the exact opposite of those things. He's not saying Jesus is like those other lords, those other lesser lords. He's saying Jesus is Lord in a way that none of those are. 
at all, that he displaces all those lesser lords. He isn't saying that you add Jesus to the pantheon of your gods. He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying that Jesus is Lord in a way that none of those are. How do we know? That's what Paul is saying. Well, in the next few verses, Paul's going to quote Joel 2, where the name of the Lord that we call upon is Yahweh, the one true creator God. Does that make sense? According to, uh, to this passage, it says that we must believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. And in the next passage, Paul will clarify that when we say Lord, we mean Yahweh. Jesus is not merely a Lord. He is the Lord. He's the second person of the Trinity, the, uh, the eternal and co-equal Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what distinguishes Christianity from Islam, from modern Judaism, from Hinduism, from Buddhism, from atheism, from all the other isms, and from the cults. So if this is true, if this doctrine is going to divide us from our neighbors of other faiths, do we therefore hate those of other faiths? We might assume so in this culture where if someone disagrees with you on Twitter you unfollow them. If someone disagrees with you on Facebook, you unfriend them. We don't have a capacity in our culture to both love someone and to disagree with them. That's not the case, though, here in the Scripture. Our very next verse is going to say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, whether ethnically Jew or Gentile, whether born into a Hindu family or a Buddhist family or Islamic family or whatever it might be. In other words, the Lordship of Christ that divides us, it truly does divide us, shouldn't lead to hatred, but instead love. Love that others would hear and believe and call on His name. So let's look at the last two verses here. Verses 11 through 13. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we bring this full circle with this overarching concern of Romans, which is not primarily about how does an individual believer get right with God as essential and as important and indispensable as that may be, but it's primarily about how can Gentiles be grafted into this Jewish faith without becoming Jewish? How can Gentiles be saved without circumcision, without Sabbath, without sacrifices, without all of these sorts of things? As we've said many times before, in the Old Testament, Gentiles could be saved but the way that they became saved was becoming Jewish. Foreigners who were grafted into Judaism would have to be circumcised, otherwise carry out all the requirements of the Mosaic law. But in Christ, that's no longer the case. Now that's all that's necessary is faith in Christ. In order to prove this, what Paul's going to do is he's going to reach back in the Old Testament, as he often does, and he's going to quote Isaiah 28 and Joel 2. From Isaiah 28, he says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And this shame that he's talking about here is not the shame that you and I might experience if we do something that's uh, particularly humiliating or embarrassing. This is not a promise that you will never experience any sort of shame at all in the context. It's a promise that you'll not face the shame of eschatological judgment. You'll not face the shame of condemnation, the shame of God's wrath, the shame of being humiliated in the day of judgment. That's the shame that it's uh, talking about there. And if everyone who believes will not be put to shame, will not be condemned, then that must include both Jew and Gentile. In fact, he will say that there is no distinction for a couple of reasons. First, because he says that they have the exact same means of attaining salvation. 
It's not like Jews take the tunnel and Gentiles take the bridge and we just kind of meet uh, on the other side. No, there is no more tunnel. There is only the bridge. That's it. Both are saved by grace through faith, whether Jew or Gentile, whether black or white, whether slave or free, whether man or woman, whatever it might be, there is only one path to God. There's only one means of attaining salvation that is by grace alone through faith of God uh, alone. So there's no distinction in that sense. Second, there's no distinction because he says there's only one God. The same Lord is Lord regardless of ethnicity or race, which is really interesting because in most ancient cultures, different cultures, different nations, different people groups had their own unique gods. So the Egyptians had their own gods. The Babylonians had their own gods. The Greeks had their own gods. The Romans had their own gods. Sometimes there would be a bit of an overlap uh, between them as cultures overlap. So Romans and, and Greeks might worship the same gods. But in general, each individual people group had their own unique gods. And this tears down that wall completely. It says those gods are no gods at all because there's only one God, and that God rules over every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people group. In other words, there's only one God. So if there's only one God, then there's only one people of God. To divide the body of Christ by Jew and Gentile, or by implication, black and white, or rich and poor, whatever it might be, is to divide Christ himself. So there's no distinction in that sense either. Now, if you remember from our previous section, Paul's seen this connection between the mouth and the heart. Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart is going to speak. The, heart, uh, the mouth believes, sorry, the heart believes, and the mouth is going to confess. Well, he picks up that same sort of idea here. He's just talked about believing. Everyone who believes will not be put to shame. So now here he's going to pick up that idea of confession. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's going to do so by quoting from Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, 28 through 32 says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now notice this, it says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's really interesting that Jews tended to read this in a very Jew-centric way, a very Israel-centric way. Whenever they would read your sons and daughters, whenever they would read your old men and young uh, men, they saw this as a promise for them. That's what they saw uh, by that, uh, the pronoun your. They assumed that this promise was generally reserved for Israel, generally reserved for Jews. But Paul is going to see something else. He's going to see something that's the exact opposite of this. Notice how it says at the very beginning that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. You notice there it's bolded up there. God is going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Paul is going to see this reference to all flesh as somehow referencing Jew and Gentile in light of the fact that he's going to read later on in the passage that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, if, if Jesus is Lord over all creation, then he's Lord over every nation, which means salvation can't be for only one nation. It can't be for only one people group. In fact, it was always intended for the entire world. 
We've talked about this a number of times, but it's really important that you grasp. Some people read the Bible as if the storyline of Scripture is Israel, 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 parentheses, church for a short period of time, and then Israel again and all the way to the end. Now, that's not how the church read the Scripture for the first 1,900 years of its existence, but probably for the past 100 years or so, that is probably the predominant uh, view within American evangelicalism, and yet it's the exact opposite. The Bible doesn't see it as Israel, 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 parentheses, church, Israel. Instead, the Bible is going to say world, 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 world. Israel is the parenthesis, and then world again. How do we know that? For a number of reasons. Let me just give you three reasons in particular. First, notice where your Bible begins. Your Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1, hopefully, unless you have a weird Bible. Your Bible doesn't begin in Genesis chapter 12 with the calling of Abraham, the father of Israel. In other words, there are 11 chapters of God's dealing with mankind before you even get to the existence of Israel. So unless your Bible begins in Genesis chapter 12, then you can't say that God's redemptive plan begins with Israel. A second reason for rejecting the idea that the world is the parentheses in God's uh, redemptive plan is because even in the establishment of Israel, you see God's heart. Even in the establishment, the initial creation of Israel, God's heart is for the entire world. Genesis chapter 12, where he first calls Abraham, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and in, in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, listen to this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. That's the ideal. That's the goal. Israel was to be a light for a dark world. She wasn't intended to hoard God's promises, but to instead extend them to the world. That's the second reason. The third reason is because the Bible ends with a vision of people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation worshiping God. That's the goal. So the Bible neither begins nor ends with Israel, but instead with the entire world. We could go on and on with other reasons, but that should suffice to demonstrate this reality that God's heart was always to reconcile people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, this universal thrust of the gospel, the implication of this is missions and evangelism, and so I'd love to talk about that, but that's our entire text next week. So I want to press pause on that, and we'll pick that up next week. And instead, what I want to do is just summarize the passage and give a few implications uh, before we close. So just to summarize our passage this morning, because it's kind of a complex uh, passage, uh, three different points here uh, for summarization. First one, Paul wants you to see that righteousness has always been by faith, always been by faith, and not works, whether that's works in general or in this context, in particular, the works of the Mosaic law. Righteousness has always been by faith. Second, therefore, in light of this, all that's necessary is that you trust in God's provision of righteousness in Christ. In light of the fact that righteousness has always been by faith and not works, whether works of the law or works in general, therefore, all that's necessary is that you trust the provision of God's righteousness in Christ. And third, if faith is all that's necessary, then that must mean that the gospel is open for Jew and Gentile and indeed the entire world. 
That's a summary of his section here. We'll talk about evangelism and missions and those kinds of things next week because that's where the text goes. But before we do that, I just want to talk about what do we do with this today? If you spent any time at all in church, nothing that we said today is novel. Nothing that we said today was particularly new. It's not a fresh revelation. You're never going to get a fresh revelation here at Parkway. We believe in the authority and sufficiency of God's Word. We just want to tell you what the Word uh, says. So, in light of this, if nothing's novel or new, then what do we do with it? Well, my hope is that God would be merciful to us today and encourage us in a couple of directions. There's innumerable implications and applications of this. I just want to mention uh, a couple in particular. First one, I just want us to be a people who consider the reality of the resurrection. Not just as an apologetic for faith, but as an apologetic for hope. If the resurrection is true, then that means whatever life throws at you, you can endure. There is nothing for which the resurrection isn't the cure. There is no amount of brokenness or sickness or death in your life for which the resurrection isn't the ultimate cure for you. If Christ can be risen from the dead, then your marriage can be raised from the ashes. Then your unbelieving child, then your unbelieving parent, who has had a lifetime of obstinance and hatred toward God is simply God speaking light into existence away from believing. So that's the first thing. Would you consider the resurrection not merely as an apologetic for faith, but as an apologetic for hope in your life? Hopelessness doesn't exist in light of the resurrection. The second thing, would the reality of the resurrection lead you to consider the lordship of Christ and repent. For some of you, that might mean repenting for the very first time. You came in here, you're not sure about this church thing, you're not sure about this Jesus thing. You have an opportunity this morning to hear the gospel, to hear the fact that God loves you, not because of what you do, but in spite of what you do, and He's provided righteousness in His Son. That His Son has lived a life you never could and died the death that you deserve, that you might be reconciled to Him, not by striving, not by attaining, not by working, but simply... Uh, by resting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Others of you have already believed that message. You're already a believer, and yet maybe there's a hidden sin in your life, a habitual struggle in your life, and you need to hear this message of repentance. As Martin Luther said, repentance is not just simply a one-time thing. The entire Christian life is a life of repentance. So would you repent this morning? Would you turn away from your sin? Would you turn toward God? in faith because He's good and He loves you and He's worthy of your worship and your affection. And that's what I want to flesh out as we, uh, as we partake in communion. So I want to pray as the men come forward and then we'll talk about that a little bit as we prepare for communion. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You um, for this righteousness based on faith. That righteousness is not based on the law because if it is based on the law, then we could never attain it. That you have already attained it for us. So all that is necessary for us is simply that we believe, that we rest, that we trust in what you have already provided for us. And so I pray that you would help us. That that might then begin to impact the way that we view our identity, the way that we think through our struggles with sin, our anxiety, our fears, our lusts, our pride, and on and on we could go. So I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that it would lodge deep into our hearts, Lord. Make us men and women who are more and more passionate for the kingdom 
of your beloved Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.